Today, we're very lucky to hear from Gagan Sethi, the founder of Center for Social Justice, Jan Vikas, and many other social initiatives which operate in Gujarat and across India. So thank you, Gagan. This is exciting to be on the podcast. We've been very lucky to have Akash speak in the last season, and I've been able to know Akash for, I think, over a decade now. And he was the one who introduced me to you, I guess, a few years ago. So sort of six to nine months into the lockdown, and I think by that time, we actually were speaking quite regularly, if I recall, given all of the phenomenal work you and the team and so many other organizations were doing to help migrant communities go back home. And so while we saw a phenomenal outpouring of relief and support during this time period, I think for me, it was there's so many other organizations and initiatives and individuals that have started stuff without that disaster. And so I was like, how do we create then conversations with individuals that continue to inspire me and lead Dasra through our journeys that are authentic, that question the norms, that question what's wrong with the social sector, what's right with the social sector. Yeah, they will, uh, you know, when disasters happen, one normally jumps into the field. I've been part of many disasters, right from the earthquake was the biggest one in Gujarat when we sort of broke ground in Kutch. And you know, we have a very strong presence in Kutch with several organizations there. But it was different. I think this disaster, in a sense, created a lot of fear and then put everybody into the houses. And therefore, it was so important to break that fear in the head. It took me about 48 hours to break it in the head. And then I said, out we go there because that's where our job is. When disasters happen, you need to be on the ground. And over the years, you know, it's been 40 years now, the idea was that if the leadership doesn't move out there in the front, you have no moral authority to tell others to come on the ground. So you're right. And there were several aspects to it, David. You know, normally when disasters happen, the whole system decentralizes. Even the government comes nearer to the ground. So instead of districts, it goes to the block. Senior IS officers are transferred right on site with a lot of power to do things. In this case, you had the opposite. When everything was centralized and a collector was powerless because there was the National Disaster Management Act and everything had to be taken approvals from Delhi which meant that many things that were happening could have been avoided or done differently, but didn't happen. So therefore, you saw those lakhs and lakhs of people walking, districts sealing their boundaries, states sealing their boundaries, and therefore negotiating all that was a very different ballgame. Therefore, it created for different levels of people, different kinds of scenarios, including what you said. You know, it just shut you in. And then comes loneliness. Then comes, you know, how do you handle this? Your, your basic supply of the poor is one thing, but at the top level, everything comes to a standstill. And therefore, you have suicide, you have mental illness, you have increased violence against women. You know, all these become new, new arenas which don't normally happen in disasters. Since you were speaking about Gujarat and the earthquake, in fact, when one of the conversations I had was with Vineet Rai. I don't know if you know Vineet Rai or not. He runs Avishkar. 
And and the reason we were speaking about this is because he is, was from Ahmedabad, lived there and ran an institution within the IIM Ahmedabad compound or sort of network called Gyan, Grassroot Innovation Augmentation Network. And Vineet and I actually, the day of the earthquake, were looking at replicating Gyan in Tamil Nadu. And we had interviews for the CEO to start an organization, which is now called Vilgro, based in Chennai. And I still remember sitting in a hotel room and Back then, you know, we would take trains because it was just unaffordable to fly. And so it was a 40-hour train journey to Madurai from Mumbai slash Ahmedabad. And I still remember watching on the news that morning and Vineet coming into the room. And I was like, Vineet, there's an earthquake in Ahmedabad. You just came. You have to go back. You have to fly. I don't care. Like, this is an emergency. And he saw the screen and it was a building next to where his wife and young child was there. And so he rushed back right away. We did the interviews and about two days later, uh, my brother also happened to be in India at the time. And so my brother and I from Mumbai, we rushed to Buj. Vineet picked us up at the airport in his Maruti 800. And then we were like, let's help. Like We need to do something. And we you know, started going around villages and started sort of seeing how aid was distributed and were just shocked on how the inequity of aid distribution, I feel like the sort of when disaster hits and humanity, unfortunately, then focuses on their own. That's what happened. I would wonder even your thoughts on like, how can that have occurred? And wouldn't have that then created sort of these divides? And I say this just because even after the tsunami hit, and we did quite a bit of work there as well, you know, just knowing, for example, Dalits and the villages not getting the aid that they deserve, and the panchayat saying, you know, as Dalits, you cannot now fish in the, the wetlands in the marsh areas, because that's now where the upper community is going to go and how even goods were distributed equally when the panchayat was there, but then taken away from lower cost communities, you know, again, in these disasters. I mean, are these things that you've seen, are these things that you feel are even related to sort of, you know, the aftermath? And what are some of the things, therefore, we need to look forward to or ensure we don't make mistakes during, you know, this sort of rebuild period? You know, Deval, you touched something, you know, touched a chord on this whole thing in a very big way for me. Because you're absolutely right, you know, relief technically should not discriminate. But when even relief, I can understand rehabilitation discriminating because communities supporting their own caste. You know, I used to be sitting in my office in Ahmedabad and I used to go, I was one of the first to land up in Kutch. You know, I had an amazing driver who always, I say, he leads when we are in disaster because that's the time you need good drivers. And we came back and the first need that was expressed by the group there was, of course, food and, you know, polythene, all that stuff because of winters. But they said, we need a map. We need a map of Kutch with districts and villages. And I came overnight and, you know, worked with one of these architectural firms and they produced a huge map. And we sent it immediately within 24 hours, a map. And now the need becomes so different. The map then was used to say, who goes where? How do you equitably distribute relief? And everything is not dumped in one place. And then those issues which you said came up. Who will give to whom? And the people were choosing. We like to give it here and there. And we said, sorry, you give us the relief. We decide how it goes. But very quickly what you said, and you know, I used to sit in my office and there was actually lined up donors and I didn't have time to give them appointments, wanting to give. And we had these needs assessments being happening and money pouring in as a total collective. We must have spent maybe about 20, 30 times the budget. 
And at that time, the Smiths were our partner. They even sent a plane load, including a rescue team here. A year later is what you mentioned. And believe me, there was not a single donor. I said, hey, where are you? I mean, but it's horrible. You know, I was part of the Human Rights Commission. I don't know whether you know that. So the Human Rights Commission, during the earthquake, appointed a monitoring committee. So we were doing, our job was exactly during the earthquake to see that there is no discrimination, that those needs of the disadvantaged. And we were constantly feeding into the government and they were listening. The NHRC continued when they, this happened. And we were actually bullied. It was only my existing donors whom I had to say, can I spend some of the money which I have left over from the earthquake to do relief work here? And they said, yes. And therefore, disasters also are politicized. That's At that time, there is no humanity. It's Again, you see politics coming into the disaster management. And I know I then worked with because there were no other civil society actors coming up, we built some amazing housing systems in Kutch. You know that. We had a separate Hunnar Shala. We designed some, you know, mud housing. And you saw Nimbadi, all that. But when it came to this, we were giving money and material to build a house in 15,000 rupees. And what can you do in 15,000 rupees? Whereas in Kutch, at that time, we were building houses for two lakhs, two and a half lakhs. It's been a life-changing experience for me personally, Devan. And from that point onwards is when Janvikas and all our entities specifically started working with the minority community, the Muslim in, in India and in Gujarat. So that was the big shift from me moving from working almost entirely with the Dalit community to start working with both the communities. And since you touched upon Jan Vikas, can you speak a little bit about your initial exposure to the NGO sector? Why did you decide to be here? What were some of the initial things that you had done? I need to go back to even my parentage. Both my parents were refugees from Pakistan in 1947. My father's father was a station master. Uh, and he had just about to retire and he had built a grand house. You know, a station master in the British Railway was something. And my mother's father was a small-time lawyer in Lahore. A rented house and, you know, just trying to, you know, what a small-time lawyer tries to do. And both of them had to come to India. And my father's father lost everything. And they came to Delhi and they were given a plot, a refugee plot in Kalkaji. And my father got a boy service in the civil aviation department as a radio operator. And he would have these night duties. And that time, Saptajang Airport was the airport, which then became Palam and then became T3, where you all land in a very grand way. But he would actually do the night duty and in the morning cycle back to Kalkaji. And on the way, he would pick up bricks. And then on his day off, which was not necessarily Sunday, he would actually make the boundary wall and make the rooms and things like that. That was his life. My mother's father came here and one, you know, for a couple of days stayed with a family friends who were then trying to push them out. And every night he used to go exploring where they could shift. And they found a huge mansion 
which was unoccupied, and they saw it for the, about seven days. And one night, they just went and occupied it. Now, just see how a turn of events, what it did to my father and what it did to my mother. And therefore, I saw my father having seen a huge house, now living in a refugee plot. I'm saying all this, Deval, because then later on, I got transferred to Ahmedabad. He got transferred to Ahmedabad and I went to St. Xavier School and college. And But somewhere, those years of seeing him struggling to make two ends meet have remained in my... I was trained in St. Xavier School, then on to college. And in college, I was introduced to three professors who were trying to experiment with achievement, motivation with Dalit communities. And I would go to the villages with them and do those surveys. And that's the first time the caste system hit me very strongly. I used to smoke. And, you know, I told one of my friends, why don't you take me to a shop? I need to buy a cigarette. And they looked at each other and said, but we'll have to go to the village. I said, yeah, let's go. And they took me there and they stood out and I was walking and they pulled me back. And from far, they said, he's a fellow who's come from outside. He needs a cigarette. And that shopkeeper who comes from an upper caste, an upper caste shop, looked at me and said, okay, you know, how many? I said, whatever, you have a packet of Bristol at that time. And I said, yes. He threw the cigarettes. And I find funny fellow, he's throwing the cigarettes. And, you know, I picked them up and, and I gave money. He said, no, put it there. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, no, no, you know, you come and stay with us. We are Dalits and therefore you are also a Dalit because you stay with us. I am talking 77, actually 76. And that's when I decided, boy, this is something different. And these professors then took me to this leadership academy and I continue to do this leadership work till today, is investing in people. And then I went on to do my master's in social work and I had to fight with my father who wanted me to go to IIM. At that time, IIM was the place to go. And I said, no, I want to do this. And he was very bitter about it. Later on, he was proud, but that time he was very bitter. And I passed out and I did very well. And I wanted to come back and work with this group. I worked with them for 10 years in the Behavioral Science Center. And then an incident happened where four of my people were killed in a caste violence. And then me, my colleague Martin and my guru, Professor Contractor, we sort of fought that case. We won that case. But I came back and wept when we won that case. And people said, but you know, victory, you won. I said, no, I've lost. Actually, I've proved that justice is not available. Because if so many people and so much of backing, institutional backing, resources are put to fight one case, I've only proved that justice is not available. Janvikas was born with that idea. We left three of us and we said, we will work on building people, communities, building leaders who will fight for justice. Justice and development to me go hand in hand. And that was my beginning of starting up Janvikas in 87. Janvikas then became an incubator. Core work was in building leaders. I continue to do that till today, Devan. Thank you for sharing. And in 87, how old was Akash at the time? Akash was born in 81, so he was six years old. And his memories are all about people coming, 
from the villages into my house, conspiring, dealing with those cases. So I'm sure he saw all that. I don't know how much of it got into him and how it affected him. But in a sense, I didn't give him time. And I think he held that very bitterly with me because I think maybe I, he needed me. I was Monday to Friday on a Rajdoot motorcycle traveling. <laughs> we had Anshu and Minakshi, the founders of Gunj, on the show. And they were speaking about Ashoka, not the university, but the fellowship program, had a session where they brought families together. So the Ashoka fellow, the spouse, and then the children, and just the number of broken families that, for whatever reason, part of the NGO sector, and so many people, again, have as social entrepreneurs, I guess we put our lives into this and then forget about the other obligations at times. And, and we were just discussing, and she was just saying how those sessions were just so hard to deal with and so hard to sort of, you know, have those conversations. And as you know, I mean, Anshu and Manaksha, husband and wife team, Neer and I are husband and wife team too. And I think it's a hard trade-off. And I guess many NGO leaders even today I think we grapple with that, you know, and like, what are we doing for our families? What are we doing for our parents? What are we doing for ourselves? And I guess there's no real right answer. Yeah, there is no right. You know, it's, it's just there is so much of anger, passion, a mixture of wanting to change the world when you are 21, 25, 27, that, you know, you just focus on that and see nothing else. Um, but, you know, I must say, I must give credit a lot to my wife who sort of held the family. She chose to teach. So therefore, she was, she anchored the whole thing. But with my daughter, it was different. You know, Avni, I gave her then a lot of time. But in a sense, if you see, both of them are, you know, have taken this value of justice, of equality. Avni runs a very beautiful museum called the Conflictorium. I don't know if you've seen it. Akash, what he does, I'm really proud of the man. I don't call him a boy now, he's a man. <laughs> and he's very sensitive to some of these issues, which he builds in building his team. I think what he's invested in building people is amazing. Oh, 100%. And that's something we've been so impressed with in terms of Quest Alliance. Again, just the whole view of, you know, whatever the individual wants to do, they give them the space, the training, and the support to enable that to happen. Of course, within the organizational boundaries and norms, there's no question about that. But I feel like that sort of belief is something that I think West Alliance has known for many, many years. And you're right. I think it's just finding sort of the leader within anyone and everyone is important. And chances are, if they're already part of the team, they already believe in the vision. And that's the hard part. The rest is actually skill building. <laughs> exactly. My life is just following people who are potential leaders, you know, just follow them, be with them, be available when they need you. And when they don't need you, disappear, you know. And I think we have built some amazing institutions around people. Touch Maila Vikas Sangathan around Sushma, Sandeep, who does Sajeevan, Shabnam, Shabnam Birmani, who built Drishti with Stalin and other people. Yes, I can go on and on. And it's been an amazing journey. Rajendra Joshi uh, with Saat. So it's been some, it's just being with them, not, you know, being available and asking them the difficult questions without judging them. I think that's been a very, very amazing journey of Janvika building. And when you came to my office, I showed you how the ecosystem grew and we are all together, yet we don't get into each other's nerves. But when the time comes, we all converge as one. 
I mean, clearly a, a lot of what you have done has been finding leaders from within and building them out. I mean, how did you go about this? How did you find them? What are the qualities that you see in individuals? And and if you can maybe give an example or two on sort of that journey, and you even wrote a book on this as well, in terms of leadership, that would be great. I always ask, are you angry? To me, anger is such a powerful feeling. Are you angry? Are you discontented? And this is where I say the shift, what you said right in the beginning, this transactionalization of development. It's about people who wanting to engage and immerse in another reality and then learn with people and then design together. So it's not just what people say you give, you design together. And what you design together then becomes historical. And I think that's what has happened with many of the leaders that have come as young people and then joined the process, ready to immerse themselves. And I remember Sushma, for example, she came from Cornell and walked into my office. You know, I was referred about you. I want to do some grassroots work. I said, but will you be able to last? I mean, you're coming from Cornell and no, 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 I just had an offer from Seva, but I'm not interested. It's too big. I want to do something on my own. At that time, I was talking to one of the ex-collectors of Ahmedabad, who's the, now with the Human Handicraft Corporation. He said, Kutch is needing this overload of handicraft as a relief operation. is creating a mess. We need to look at the development thing. So we said, let's find a person who can do that. So I told her, I said, this is an option. So I like to see, we both went to Kutch, spoke to the collector, visited some young people. And she said, yeah, I'm taking this on. I said, there's nothing. There's no money. She says, okay, it'll happen. We got a pair with her alka from the local district. And they used to go on buses right up to Khawra. And, you know, we had some money from the Border Area Development Program to do training programs for women. And I remember uh, she said, training is okay, but these people need their separate spaces. If you remember, in the early, late 80s, the feminist movement wasn't creating separate spaces for women. She said, let's do a training program where the women build their own space. So they actually physically build their own space and we converted that as a training program. So the money given to us was to conduct a workshop. Now today, if I do workshop, and I actually build a small little hut from the workshop, they'll say, I am doing something very foolish. And that's against the project norms. That brings, I guess, I guess on one hand, like you, again, have been part of the sector for so many years. What are some of the sort of progress do you think we've made as a development sector? And what are some of the sort of areas we've taken two steps back? David, I think as civil society or as, development workers, we have made huge progress from, I think, the 70s to the late 90s was amazing period where lots of innovations happened in areas of health, education, and it was deconstructing the big systems to small systems and getting local people to handle their own lives. I think Huge initiative, whether it was Bunker in, in uh, Roy, in uh, Tilonia. There were some beautiful examples in, in the South. In Bihar, there was amazing work being done. We were running a program called Atma, which is Awareness Training Motivation for Action. 
and you know converting that time from charity to development that was and that was a large frame and therefore i think a huge amount of work at the core of course i always say you know we are impatient yes but we are a young democracy a nation must look at its years as one is to 10 and if that means if we are actually 10 years of a nation's age we are actually one year and in that sense we are seven and a half years old and the seven and a half years old we need to be patient and i think there were three things which we were combining well to me providing services whether it was health agriculture to those who were still dealing with hunger and hunger was very big issue we used to have these food for work programs and things like that which was converting food into work into asset creation you know that kind of thing so i think it was about services but look at services from a development point of view that therefore asset creation of the poor became important i think the other thing really was for my mind innovations and a lot of innovations came the watershed program the aroles who came up with where there's no doctor innovations at micro level in technology which you know eased life in drudgery of women so there was smokeless chulas you know those thousands of such innovations came and i think the third which was also there was what i call dissent and protest challenging power challenging discrimination challenging you know access to justice so i think most organizations fused this pretty well and then came the separation of the three the service delivery walas became the service delivery walas the innovation walas were only focusing on innovation and then finding somebody else to disseminate and the dissent and protest walas became the anti nationals and i think that's been the tragedy in the last 10 12 years so i keep asking this question who made us into an ngo because what does it mean actually it's non government organization it means it's just telling you who you are not it's not telling you who you are we were voluntary organizations which meant with a positive identity we were civil society organization which meant that we are part of the democratic triad of market state and civil society and so much is transactionalized that today i am having these workshops in which asking this question let's not talk of what we do can we talk of who we are and reimagine our identity it's also because remember as a triad of civil society market and state we were in creative tension i would hold account companies government would hold me to account i would hold government to account and government would hold market to account i think with the market taking over and even controlling the state the two come together and therefore now you can't have civil society fighting both so civil society makes friends with the market and the market tells civil society look you don't know how to do your job learn from us development is a managerial paradigm and i think sorry development is a political paradigm it's asking the question who gets how much how resources are going there it's about empowering people and they said no 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 that's all old fashion i'll give me scale 
I'll tell you how to manage. I'll give you a log frame and I'll train your people how to manage. I'm not a company. And I think this is where the schism started becoming larger and larger. I keep saying, listen, by Abibi, I do a lot of workshops. I'm called by these large organizations. But believe me, if in a quarter, in three months, I don't do two workshops with community workers, with village women, I'm empty. But it's those two workshops I do every quarter where I sit down with them for three days, four days. That's what gives me energy. That's what keeps me rooted. Because more than I don't know whether I'm giving them anything, I take back by listening to them. We have stopped listening. Now that you're a card-carrying member of Fiki, which I still feel entertained by, what, what was part of the listening journey for you uh, and others and, and what, what made you join Fiki and, and what was sort of, you know, the, the, the social compact initiative and, and where you see that today and, and have some of the tenants that you've just spoken about been kept alive or, or been broken down because of, you know, this particular initiative? I've always said, I think it's an amazing initiative. The people who have sort of saw this and they want to, that this shouldn't happen. I think those industry champions were willing to listen to us. I think that's the beginning of it. And that if we need to build this partnership, it has to be, okay, respectful disagreements, uh, but encouraging them that we can, you know, listen to people. You may not have the time, but we can provide those voices to you. And I was taught this very early on, Deval. I came, you know, after being a very bright student at my master's. And when I joined the Behavioral Science Center, the first thing I was told is that for one year, you have to de-learn. And believe me, I had a very good job opening and offers from many of these multinational companies. And I'd make this choice thinking, you know, I'm going to go there out and do development work. And my mentor said, sorry, for one year, you're not going to do anything. And I'm going to pay you for doing nothing but listening. And I was supposed to go Monday to Friday, stay in one village all the time, six days, six nights, and then write my logs, which would be then corrected, discussed, and then sent me back for one full year. And that teaches you how to listen. It cannot be taught in one day, two days, three days. There's something you need to practice because... Then you have to fight your own ego. You have to deconstruct who you are, open up. But social compact, I think, is telling us the future or tomorrow. It is a respectful partnership between industry and those who are, have a conscience. And I think those visuals did hit the conscience of many and that they are open to listen to reality. I've always had a great respect for Anuaga. So whether the corporates would be able to, you know, really ask those difficult questions inside them. And we are happy to work with them. I think the gross inequality cannot, I mean, has to be really worked or reworked with because we can't build a sustainable India or a sustainable world with this kind of an inequality. And I think I look at the social compact as one way correct that wrong. 
What gives you hope as we go forward? I mean, you've, again, seen shifts in the sector. You've seen through your own family, different even initiatives that are being taken. You know, some are service delivery, some are museums, some are conversations. But what gives you hope and how can these three sort of, you know, aspects of society come together more often and be that, that active listener? Movements are waiting to happen. Leaders are being built. It's the convergence at different points of time that needs to be channelized. And that's where I think civil society has to forget their role as NGOs and also play their role as civil society. I think that's... And today there's no shortage of money available for development, frankly. It's how to access them, how to build a community of practice, how to build leaders to access their rights. I think how to talk and what you said, how to convey the real story. There's need for thought leaders at all levels, just not implementers. And building thought leaders, I mean, it takes time. You need to build with young people, invest in them, so Teach for India is important. The good question to ask is, from the Teach for India, what is the kind of leadership that is coming out which will not fly away, Peter, but remain in those spaces and then take up their own issues, work with their governments, and if necessary, dissent, ask the difficult questions. So each program, while it has some immediate benefit, must have the seedings of a long-term impact in terms of building people. This, to me, is non-negotiable. I sit on you know almost 16 or 17 boards now, in governance. And my question to them is this. Don't give me this big idea of what you're doing. Tell me how many people have you impacted in terms of they taking over your role? How many leaders are you created who are value-based? Who are first, you know, our citizens, this citizenship building. Because we are seven and a half years old. Soon we'll be 15, 20. So, that's the hope comes that there are lots of those young people. I keep telling my friends in development work, focus on long term. Great. No, no, thank you, Gagan. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and your sharing your views and lots of nuggets of learnings and reinforcements of things we have done as well as the ideas of things we should do going forward. Thank you so much, David. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.